And we're looking at Luke 11, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down again to verse 13. And before we do, let me again just briefly pray for us for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we do again ask that you would please cause your word to take deep root in us. Would you give each and everyone present here this morning eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you make us to hear the voice of the Son of God that we might come forth and live that we might be drawn to the Lord Jesus with cords of love, that you would instruct us, that you would build us up, that you would mature us, that you would humble us, that you would give us hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for all that you have done for us through Christ crucified and risen. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, make us very attentive to the ministry of your word and accomplish your eternal purposes in the lives of each one present here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, beginning in verse 1. Notice now, Luke uh, writes, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything." I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. That's actually very humorous if you think about what Jesus says there. He's not going to give him anything because he's his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him, instead of a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, some of you are familiar with Martin Luther's short little book called A Simple Way to Pray. It is a book that he wrote for his barber, Peter the Barber, that was his name. It sounds like he might be in the music industry if he were alive today, Peter the Barber. And I've told you in the past, kind of jokingly, I I suspect that Peter the Barber made up the bowl cut, because every picture of Luther, he's got the bowl cut. And and I'm probably wrong about that. I knew very little about Peter the Barber uh, since he lived in the 1530s. But um, was reading Luther's simple way to pray that he wrote for his barber at his request and uh, discovered this amazing historical background to that little book. Peter the barber had a son-in-law named Dietrich who served in uh, the German army. He was a soldier and he used to brag about being invincible to ever getting uh, struck with a sword. That many people had tried to strike him with a sword, and he had some sort of invincibility to swords. And so one night when uh, they were all hanging out and drinking a little too much, uh, Peter the barber took a dagger and stuck it into the heart 
of his son-in-law, Dietrich, and killed him. This is a true story. And Dietrich's <laughs> bragging uh, was futile at that point, and, uh, and Peter the barber was distraught that, in a sense, he had accidentally killed his son, son-in-law. And uh, he was sentenced to death. Luther went to his defense and begged the princes. Luther had that kind of relationship with the princes in Germany, and he begged the princes that Peter the Barber could be exiled, which he was. Uh, He was so devastated over what he had done. He was a professing Christian. He had at some point told Luther, there's no way that I could be God's child and have done something this egregious. And there's no way that God... Um, is going to accept me, and, and he must have said at some point, I want to pray again, and I can't because of the guilt and the grief of what he had done. And so Luther took time out of his very busy schedule at the university to write a simple way to pray, which includes an exposition of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, which we confessed this morning, and um, the Lord's Prayer. And it's very interesting, at the outset of that little book, A Simple Way to Pray, Luther says to his friend, Peter the Barber, when I feel that I have become cool and joyless in prayer because of other tasks or thoughts for the flesh and the devil always impede and obstruct prayer, I take my little psalm book, hurry to my room, or if it's the day and hour for it, to the church where a congregation is assembled, and as I have time, I, I say quietly to myself, word for word, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and if I have more time, some words of Christ or the Apostle Paul or some psalm, just as a child might do. It's really beautiful. It was said of Luther that sometimes people would go to listen to him pray because he would pray uh, audibly, and that it was like a child speaking a little child speaking to his father, yet with great boldness, this, this weird hybrid of childlikeness and yet great boldness. Now, Luther wrote that at the request of a man who was going through a, a great time of despair and spiritual darkness and the guilt of his sin and fearing whether or not uh, he was indeed God's child and how could he do this um, if he were indeed a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you have something... Uh, not quite as stark and intense. Here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is himself praying as he was often doing in his ministry. Uh, The Redeemer was often strengthening himself in prayer, praying for God's blessing, praying for great redemptive historical movements of God's spirit and being carried along in the messianic ministry through his prayer life. And one of his disciples, we don't know who, is witnessing him praying and says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, before I look at this with us in any detail this morning, there's almost a sense of desperation in the question. We don't know who the disciple is, but you almost sense this disciple's desperation. Um, He, maybe she, feels as though uh, he or she doesn't know how to pray feels distant from the Lord, doesn't know what real prayer looks like, and so he or she does the right thing and goes to the Lord Jesus. And then we get this incredible section here in Luke chapter 11 of the Lord's instruction. We we often call this the Lord's Prayer. That's a bit misleading because the Lord himself never prayed it. Uh, Jesus is the only one who never had to pray forgive us our debts because he had none. He takes all ours on himself at the cross. 
He never prayed the Lord's Prayer. He, in fact, prays his own prayers that we see in places like John 17, that we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But this is the prayer that he gives his disciples at the request of this disciple in instructing his people how to pray and how desperately we need this. Let me say this this morning uh, by way of preface. It would be very easy to use this to guilt you into a better prayer life. Um, None of us has the prayer life that we should have. I don't need to know anything about you to know that. If the great Martin Luther, who God single-handedly used to bring the Reformation in Germany and the recovery of the gospel, as it were, there in that great country, struggled with prayer and admitted to having times when he felt cold or joyless in his heart and struggled, I know that we all feel that. And yet what Jesus teaches here is to encourage us, not to guilt us, but it is a great encouragement and incentive to prayer. It is to stir you up this morning. It is to stir me up so that we would long to go to our Father and long to go to him uh, acting on and praying in accord with what our Savior teaches us here. Well, we're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to consider the pattern for prayer that Jesus gives. He gives a pattern for prayer there in uh, verses 2 through 4. And then we're going to consider the persuasions to prayer. He's going to give us two ways in which he seeks to persuade us to a diligent and persevering prayer life in the remainder of this passage, verse 5 through 11. Well, let's consider this morning the pattern for prayer. You know, Jesus did not give the Lord's Prayer so that we would just say it by rote uh, memorization. That's often sadly, how it's been used in the history of the church. It's tacked on at the end of a pastoral prayer. The whole congregation starts praying it together. I like that. I'm not against that. That's not entirely why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer or what it is. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he warns against vain repetition when he introduces the Lord's Prayer there in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, don't be like the Gentiles who don't have a God who heap up lots of words and through repetition think they're going to be heard for saying these sort of mantras. So it's, it's not, it's, there's everything right to praying the words of the Lord's Prayer all the time from your heart and with other believers. But it is not given so that we would just recite it by rote ritual. It is given by the Lord Jesus as a pattern. It is the nuts and bolts of what our prayer life should look like. Derek Thomas um, often says that the, uh, the prayers in so many churches are more like organ concerts than they are like real prayers. You know, I pray for my Aunt Sally's leg. I pray for my Uncle Bill's Uh, heart. It's an organ concert. I'm praying for every part of their body. Again, that's right to do. Um, Sometimes maybe you've been in a prayer meeting. I've been in these where someone doesn't seem to know what to pray for. And so they say, you know, pray for my aunt Sally's cousins, uncles, nephews, dog who ran away. And I'm thinking, I don't even know how we would get there mentally. To, to make that the prayer request. But Jesus tells us there is plenty for us to be praying for, and he gives us the paradigm by which we would pray, and he tells us essentially what is most important about prayer and how we should think about the content of our prayers and what we should be aiming at 
in our prayer life. One of the interesting things about the Lord's Prayer, and it's, it's different here in Luke than it is in Matthew. There's a few little nuanced differences. Um, Jesus is probably teaching it in a different setting than he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Just like a lot of preachers preach the same sermon again and again, Jesus is giving it in a different format, and he's giving it in a summary. He's summarizing very basic ways what he develops more in Matthew 6. Um, But one of the unique things about the Lord's Prayer is that it's very much like the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed that we confessed this morning. Remember, the Ten Commandments are two tables. Uh, The first four commandments are duty to God. Those are the most important. And the last six commandments are responsibility toward others. Um, Jesus will summarize those two, and he'll say that the first four commandments are um, the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, something you've never done, which is why you need a Savior. And then the second is like it, it's second to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, something you also have never done properly, which is why we need a Savior. And yet you see that Jesus um, gives us something very similar in the Lord's Prayer. The first two petitions are directed to God, his glory, his kingdom. Our hearts ought to be first and foremost desirous of the glory of God. And then the last three petitions have to do with our physical and spiritual needs and our interactions with others. It's very interesting. He doesn't start with um, what I think my physical or even spiritual needs are first and foremost. He starts with who God is and what his kingdom is and what his will is and how the desire of the Christian ought to be to see God glorified above all things. You know, it's very interesting. Jesus is God and man in one person. And yet Jesus prays in the day of his, days of his flesh as fully man. He prays to his father. And, and in John 17, in that great high priestly prayer, he gives us another, you might say, uh, pattern for prayer. And if you look there in John 17, in the first five verses, he prays, first of all, that the father would glorify him and that he would glorify the father with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. So the first thing Jesus prays before he goes to the cross is that God would get glory. This is going to sound irreverent, but Jesus was a good shorter catechism person. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the first thing the Lord Jesus prays is for the glory of God. Now, I think it's a good time for us to ask ourselves the question, how often am I praying that God gets glory in me, through me, in my family, with my spouse, with my children, in our church, wherever I go in the world, that his name would be magnified, that the name of the Lord would be magnified. That's it. Like we are on this globe for one reason and one reason only, to make, I'm going to say this reverently because it's not good theology, what's behind it is to make God's name great. 
God's name is great. He doesn't need us to make it great, but we are here to glorify God. Uh, The Lord, the covenant Lord, Yahweh, in Isaiah, he says, these people I have created for my glory, for my glory, to display my beauty. Remember, at creation, uh, Adam was the image bearer of God with that perfect image. We have the marred image of God in us um, because of sin, and yet he was to show forth. He was like a, a king. When he conquered a land, he would go and he would set up a statue. Nebuchadnezzar does this in, in uh, the book of Daniel, and that statue would say, this is the king. This is a vague resemblance of the one who is king over all. And that's what God did in the Garden of Eden. He put, he put his image bearer there to show forth his glory, to advance his kingdom, to take the garden out, to fill the earth and to turn the earth into the garden temple where God would dwell with his people. That's it. That's the mystery of life. That's it. That was God's purpose. So that the infinite God would fill the temple paradise with his people, his image bearers. And yet, instead of doing that, Adam and Eve disobeyed, rebelled against the God of heaven, took their own image on themselves, marred the image of God, perverted what God had intended. And the rest of human history, according to scripture, is God undoing that in a people that he has chosen for himself to remake them into his own image through Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Now, everything Jesus says in the first two petitions of the Lord's Prayer center on that. Father, hallowed be your name. Sanctified be your name. May people know that you are God, the triune God, the covenant Lord, Yahweh, that you are God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that he is God, over all the earth, that there is no other God, that his name would be hallowed, that men and women would put their trust in him, that they would call on him, that they would rely on him, that they would be named with his name. That's one of those beautiful things in scripture, by the way. Um, one of the most wonderful and, and unexpected ways that God talks about um, who we are as those who have been redeemed is that we are those he has put his name on. So he says, let everyone who names the name of Christ know that the solid foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. He has put his name on his people. He has said, you will be mine. I will set you apart for my name's sake. My name will be exalted in the earth. And you know, in the prophets, whenever God sent judgments, he almost always followed it up and he said, this is going to happen and then you will know that I am the covenant Lord, that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord over all the earth. You know, how, what, a far, what a far cry we are from that. What a wicked world we live in. What an empty world. We've recently seen on the news, haven't we, how empty people's souls are. It's heartbreaking. Men and women are lost. Nations are lost. They don't know the name of the Lord. Um, John Piper said when the tsunami hit, 
now many, 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 many years ago. Um, and people were blaming God for it. And he said, it's tragic that God gets blamed for things when they seem to go wrong, but not praised for 10,000 years of wrath withheld. Think about that. Every second of our life, we should be praising God for not sending us to hell, for not having dealt with us according to our sins, for not giving us over to what we would be otherwise. And Jesus is saying, look, beyond that, and this is so beautiful, the heart of the Christian message and the heart of prayer is to know God as your father. Isn't that marvelous? The God who is the judge over all the earth, who would be just in condemning every one of us to eternal destruction forever, has adopted us into his family and given us the privilege of calling him our father and, and knowing him as our father. You know, J.I. Packer, in uh, one of the really well-known sections to his very, very, very famous book, Knowing God, uh, says these famous words, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child. If you want to know how much a person makes of Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of being God's child as having God as his or her father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. I found that, that's a, that's a great line. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of the doctrine of adoption. That's it. That's the highest. That's the summum bonum. That's the greatest good for us is to know God as our father. And Jesus says that we are to pray to him, not as God generally, not as that greatest being of which there is none greater generally, not as a higher power generally, not even under that really very appropriate title, God Almighty, but as our Father. Now, I don't think he has in mind what we know so well here in the South, when if you've been uh, in churches in the South a long time and, and people pray publicly and they say Father 20 times in two sentences, it's, it's almost humanly impossible to get that many fathers out. But in their hearts, in their hearts, Jesus is saying the epicenter of Christianity and real prayer is in your heart, praying from your heart to your Father in heaven and knowing the enormous privilege you have. And so everything else he says has got to be couched by that. Now, in order for you to know God as your Father, you have to know Jesus as your Savior. John Calvin wrote an exposition of the Lord's Prayer And that's the first point he makes. He says, to have God as your father, to be able to say, God is my father, you have to know the Lord Jesus Christ because it's only in the son that we are adopted as sons and daughters and are reconciled to our father. And so it's an appropriate appropriate observation. You know, when he hung on the cross, Jesus um, addresses his father three times. He addresses God three times. Uh, two of which he addresses him directly as father, the first petition and the last petition. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, Right in the middle, 
He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as if that, that middle cry, missing the cry of the affection of the Father, because the Son is bearing the wrath for our sin on the cross, is what enables the first and the last prayer and what enables us to go to him and to pray to him as our Father, like children would cry out to their Father in all their needs, in all their moments of weakness, in all their times of fear, And notice that Jesus says our first great desire ought to be that God's name be exalted, our Father's name be hallowed, and that his kingdom come. Now, his kingdom has already come in the Lord Jesus. And yet there's another sense in which we are to pray for the salvation of the nations. We're to pray for the salvation of our lost loved ones, for our children, for our family members. That's that's what he's saying in praying your kingdom come, that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed, that men and women would be plucked like brands from the fire, that they would be united to the sun. Um, I think Martin Luther exemplified that in writing a simple way to pray for his friend when he accidentally murdered his son-in-law. Why would Martin Luther take the time out to do that for him because he longed for him to have the comfort of the gospel, to know forgiveness, to again know the beauty of and the great privilege of being reconciled to God as a father. And then notice that Jesus then tells the disciples and us that we ought to pray for our physical needs and for our spiritual needs. Very interesting, a very brief observation. Um, there are three petitions. One is for our physical needs. Give us this day. Our daily bread, Um, I love how Sinclair Ferguson says, now if you're out there and you're like, I don't need to pray for that, I work for everything I have. He says, you can't even get up on your legs and walk to the refrigerator and open the door and get some bread if God doesn't let you do that. You can't even stand up out of your seat right now if God doesn't enable you to do that. You can't breathe another breath of air unless God lets you do that. Um, And yet, it's interesting, while our God certainly cares about our physical needs, there is only one petition for our physical needs. There are two petitions for our spiritual needs. I think that's fascinating. Um, Now, what does Jesus teach us about our needs spiritually here in this pattern of prayer? Well, the first thing he teaches us is that you are a sinner and that you are going to keep sinning. It's the first thing he teaches you, that you are going to keep sinning and you're going to keep needing the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus gives a summary form of what to pray for, he, he begins spiritual application in prayer by saying we should be going back to God constantly saying, Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me, forgive me, blot out my iniquities, forgive me my debts, forgive What I have done against you, as David said, blot out my iniquities, purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Remind me that you have put my sin on your son. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And then secondly, that God would cause us to grow spiritually and lead us not into temptation. Just two very brief observations for you this morning. The first is that if you are a Christian, um, your goal in life 
is, should be to be the chief repenter of all the people you know. So if everybody you know, sitting next to you in your home, in the workplace, every Christian you know, I should make it my goal to be the chief repenter. That I should, right? Jesus said, focus on the log in my eye before I help my brother or sister with the speck in theirs. So that's what Jesus is teaching you. Forgive us our debts. And then the second thing is that you should be known as a forgiving person. There is nothing that is more unbecoming of a man or woman who professes to know God than that he or she is not a forgiving person. Um, We have been forgiven so much because of the death of Jesus. We should be chief forgivers. So we should be chief repenters, and we should be chief forgivers. We should be foremost among those saying, I need the Lord to have mercy on me. And we should be foremost among those saying, I forgive you. I love you. You're washed. You're covered. That's one of the most beautiful things in the world that I have ever had anybody say to me when I've gone to someone and I've been grieved over usually something I said and sinful because I say a lot and said something sinful and I go and I'm like, will you please forgive me? I shouldn't have said that. And my very spiritually minded friends will often say, brother, you are washed. You are forgiven. Never going to bring it up again. That's what Jesus has in mind. Not this, yeah, I forgive you, but it's going to take like 40 years to heal. Um, I had a guy say to me once, we had an altercation. I was like, will you forgive me? He was like, well, time heals all wounds. Well, it never actually healed that one. And that guy is a mess today. I remember going home and thinking back on time heals all wounds. No, the blood of Jesus heals all wounds. No, the blood of Jesus heals all wounds. The blood of Jesus forgives sin. And we are to be a people that forgive because we are forgiven. And we are to be a people that seek for holiness. Not just I'm going to keep sinning and so, but, but every day, and we need to make this our practice. Lord, please do not lead me into temptation today. Please deliver me from the evil one. Now, there is so much there. I want to commend to you Martin Luther's uh, simple way to pray. I want to commend to you John Calvin's exposition of the Lord's Prayer. But I want to challenge us that we would be a people that would be joyfully going to our Father and praying to him for his glory, for our physical and our spiritual needs. And notice that it's communal. That's the last thing I'll say about the pattern. Not one thing in it is when you pray, say, my Father. Now, you can say that, and you should say that, but it is always with respect to life in the community of believers. Isn't that awesome? You cannot live the Christian life. You cannot live a praying life in isolation. We need each other. We need each other. Now, very quickly, Jesus is going to give two persuasions to pray on the tail end of this pattern. The first is going to be a parable. I've got a lot of P's this morning. Pattern for prayer, persuasions to pray. Two persuasions. One is a parable and one is a parallel. Now, lots of P's to keep... Keep sweet peas, somebody called them. Um, now, he gives a parable. He says there was a man, he's in bed with his kids and his wife. I think in the ancient Near East, it was kind of popular for everybody to like be in the same bed. It's really weird and would get super, super annoying. But you hear this guy's in bed, everybody's, everybody's deep in sleep, it's midnight. 
his neighbor's getting anxious because he's got a friend coming and he doesn't have any food. So he goes over and he's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking. Now, if you ever do that to me, number one, I will never wake up, ever. I mean, you would have to bust the door down. I'm not waking up. Um, And I'm pretty sure our friendship is going to fall apart very quickly. Um, So never, ever, ever come knocking on my door unless it's an absolute emergency at midnight. And I'm sure you share that sentiment. But this guy comes. He thinks it's important enough. He's worried. He doesn't have enough food. He knows that his friend has food and his neighbor. So he goes, he knocks, he knocks, he knocks. And Jesus says that his friend doesn't want to get up because he's his friend. (laughs) He's like, ah, it's just Bob. I'm not going to go help him. I just pulled that out of midair. If your name's Bob and you're here, I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) And and he's like, nah, I'm not just going. And then finally, Jesus says, because of his um, uh, importunity, sort of his annoyance, because he's, he's just annoyingly, persistently knocking for this bread. He said he's going to get up and he's going to help him. Notice Jesus says, um, he thinks to himself, I tell you, in verse 8 actually, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, God is not saying through the Lord Jesus that he is ever bothered by how often we pray. That's not the analogy in the parable. But what he is teaching us is that we are to be persistent in prayer. Don't let off in praying. I'm 40 years old, and I'm ashamed at how much of my life I've spent trying to figure things out with others without going to the Lord and persistently praying about it. How many years I've wasted, how much time I've wasted running to others when I should have been running to my Father in heaven, running to the throne of grace, knowing that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that nothing is too hard for him. This is the God that raises the dead. This is the God that calls those things that are not as though they were. This is the God who gave his son for us. Will he not also with him? freely give us whatever we absolutely need. And notice, very interesting, in Jesus' parable, the man who is asking is not asking selfishly. This is very important because a lot of people pray very selfish prayers. James actually says, you have not because you ask not. You ask because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. And that's not pleasing to God. He's not saying, don't ask for your daily bread. He's saying, selfish desires self-pleasing desires. But this man is asking for a friend. Isn't that interesting? He's persistent in prayer for the well-being of another. I think that's a fascinating little detail in the parable. He's going to his neighbor, begging for bread because he has a friend coming. Now, there is a world of theology of prayer in that. I think Jesus is teaching us that we should be persistent for the prayers of the salvation of those around us. We should be persistent for the well-being of others. We should be persistent in bringing others before the throne of grace. I have friends who often remind me, and you've heard this saying, it's impossible to not like someone when you're praying for them. 
I mean, you could think of the person you like the least, and if you start praying for their salvation, you start loving them in your heart in some weird way. You start loving them because you're wanting real good for them from the Lord. You're not wanting harm for them. You're wanting them to be restored and built up and redeemed and reconciled in Christ. Well, finally, Jesus gives a parallel to persuade us. And this is, I'm going to sort of just camp out here at the end of this sermon. Um, Jesus is going to say, he's going to transition by saying, look, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because if you keep doing it, the Lord is going to answer. That's not name it, claim it, health, wealth, prosperity stuff. That's saying persist. Persist in prayer because God loves to answer persistent prayers because he is glorified by it and it shows our dependence on him and it shows that we really believe what we say we believe about him. And even though he may say no to some or many of our requests, even if they're well-meaning, he loves to answer the prayers of his people. He loves to surprise us in how he answers prayer. He loves to open and to give and to give more. He is abundant. He's the infinite God. He loves. He's an overflowing fountain of goodness. He loves to just overflow in abundant goodness to those that continue. And he is the perfect heavenly father. Now, Jesus is going to say something very interesting. He's speaking to a number of people who are following him, with him, Uh, By human standards, we might say they're good people. Now, there are no good people. In this room, there are no good people, starting with me. By nature, Paul says, a wretched man that I am. Uh, There are no good people by nature. And yet, the people with Jesus, these are his disciples. Except for Judas, they're going to go on and be some of the greatest people that have ever walked the face of the earth in, in seeing and laboring for the kingdom of God to be established And Jesus says to them, which of you who have children would trick them or mean ill for them? He says, you who are earthly fathers who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Every time I buy my children something, I think about this verse just about. It happened this week. I bought one of my sons something and I thought, I'm an an evil person. I just gave a good gift to my child, but I'm an evil person. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, two things I want to say. Jesus is not giving a blanket statement. There are people who have horrible fathers or no fathers. Lots and lots of people. And I have had to counsel people who have struggled in parsing through how can I think of God as my father when my father wasn't there. Um, That's a very common experience in our day. Um, Or my father isn't kind to me, or my father was verbally abusive or physically abusive, or, and, 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 you know, all of us who have had fathers have seen the sinful side of our fathers. And all of us who are fathers have exhibited our sinful sides. Um, but I think what Jesus is doing in the parallel, he's not, he's not saying fixate on your earthly father, whoever he may be or whoever he may not have been 
around you. He's saying there is, by way of analogy, a perfect father over all. James will say he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning and from whom every good and perfect gift comes and who doesn't give partially and who will never leave you nor forsake you and who brought us forth by his own will through the word of truth and who rejoices to call us sons and daughters and who wants to give us the best gift. And this is where I want us to end this morning. Jesus teaches us in this final word there in verse 13, what is the most important thing we should be praying for? We should be praying that our Father gives us the Holy Spirit. That's not a one-time thing. That is, a, that is an over and over and over again repeatable prayer. Father, will you give me your spirit? Because that's the best gift. You know, more than anything that you need. I want you to think about stuff you feel like you really need. I really need money to pay my astronomical taxes every year. And I get stressed about taxes. And that is nothing compared to my need for the Holy Spirit. And if earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, and they do, not all of them, but most of them, Jesus gives us an absolute guarantee there is a perfect father who when you come to him and you say, my father, give me your spirit, I need your spirit, he is going to give that spirit to you. He is going to give him to you, he's gonna come and dwell in you, he's gonna form Christ in you, He is going to give you a greater measure of the Spirit. He's going to give you the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to say this this morning. We have plenty to take home from here and put into practice. Um, Jesus has given us a pattern of prayer. Jesus has given us persuasions to persistent prayer and to be praying for the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge you that you would not go through your life constantly putting other things out in front of prayer and and thinking they are more important. That is one of the greatest weaknesses we have. Is you know, Luther says in that short short uh, way to pray, a simple way to pray, Luther says, um, resist the urge to convince yourself that you can just put these things, I'll just take care of these and then I'll go pray. It's like Luther knew your heart and my heart. He said, resist the urge because no sooner will you do that that you'll keep doing that and and you won't strike while the iron's hot. And so what I think the Lord Jesus would have for us is to be a people that are committed to going to our Father in heaven, growing in our knowledge of him, calling on him, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, seeking out our daily physical and spiritual needs, And above all, praying for the best gift, the gift of the Spirit for ourselves and for those that we care about and long to see know the Lord Jesus. I hope that you will be someone that that does that. You can only do it by faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to be trusting in the Lord Jesus. You've got to be believing in him. We can only go to our Father through the Son, 
No one comes to the Father except through me, and yet Jesus has laid down his life to make our prayers acceptable. He has taken all of our sin on himself, and he has opened a new and living way into the very throne room of heaven for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would please make us a people of prayer. Would you make us a people who meditate on your word and who pray according to your word? Make us men and women and boys and girls who pray according to your will, that you would make us a people who pray your word back to you and who prioritize those things for which we pray. We do ask, our God, that you would give us a spirit of prayer, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, Lord. We so desperately need him. And above all, we pray that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternally begotten and beloved Son, our Redeemer, our Savior, the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you and praise you for him and praise you that you hear us because of him and through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Normally, our practice would be to come to the Lord's Supper at this time, but this morning is a special service for us. We are um, going to